and welcome to the second episode of Go Figure, Our Man in Washington, a new podcast from Chartered Accountants Worldwide Network USA. During this episode, we'll be talking you through the latest US market trends from inflation and employment to the outlook for the commercial real estate and the US tax system and what all that means for you and your business. We'll also be looking at the latest stories to emerge from the world of accounting. I'm Antia Dirks from Chartered Accountants Worldwide, and our man in Washington is David Freeman, Director of Corporate Governance at Chartered Accountants Worldwide Network USA. David, welcome. Good morning, Antia. How are you? Very well, thank you. So look, let's start with inflation figures. Where are they in the US right now and what's the impact been on interest rates? Well, the inflation rate has been trending downwards. It started when we last spoke in uh, October around then to from 7.7%. It's down to 6.5 now. And a lot of that decline has actually been attributable to gas prices, uh, petrol as, as, as you call them which declined significantly until around the Christmas time to about $3.09 a gallon average across the country. Unfortunately, they've spiked up again to where they were uh, before that decline. So I'm not sure whether we're going to see a repeat of the extent of the drop in inflation when we hear about that in January, but let's see what happens. The interesting thing was that actually prices declined by 0.1% in December, which is is good news. So, you know, inflation looks like it's heading in the right direction, but interest rates are still on the uh, rise. We just saw another increase by the Federal Reserve yesterday of 0.25%. So they don't regard the battle against inflation as over yet. And there are some, you know, some headwinds still. There is still a lot of uncertainty. But for now, we're heading in the right direction. It's really interesting, actually, because just now the Bank of England actually has uh, again raised its interest rates to four percent, which is the tenth time in the row in a row, I believe. So clearly, that inflation battle is still ongoing and something that is worth keeping an eye on. So, okay. How then have those interest rates affected the dollar, if at all? Well, that's an interesting correlation. Normally, you'd expect interest rates, the higher they go, to increase the dollar's strength. But the dollar's actually been on the opposite direction. The dollar gained uh, 17% during the first three quarters of 2022 as interest rates were rising, as the world regarded the dollar as a safe haven against the recession winds that were blowing across the world. But then since September, it's actually declined 11%. Why, you ask? Well, inflation has been moderating here, which means that there is an expectation of lower interest rate rises, which is exactly what's happened. But also, we've seen some improving strength in the rest of the world. We've seen the China lockdown end, and we've seen energy prices in Europe abate. And we've also had a report in the last uh, couple of days from the IMF, whose global outlook has improved a little bit. So 
you know, if the dollar is a, a place to go for a safe haven, it sounds like the world is itself a little bit safer, and that's just contributing to the dollar's decline. Wow, well, that's really interesting. And I'm wondering what your uh, GDP or gross domestic product is looking like this quarter. Is America still on a positive upward trajectory, do you think? It, it is. The fourth quarter GDP was up 2.9%. Now, that's down from the uh, increase that we saw in quarter three of 3.2%. But it's you know still it's still positive compared to what we had at the beginning of 2022 with two negative quarters and uh, the outlook's pretty good. So you know the things are gradually declining a little bit on that front, but you know we're we're not in we're not in in a recession by any means at the moment. Right. Well, let's turn now then to um, employment data, and I'm really interested actually in your thoughts on the layoffs in tech. Recently, it seems that Amazon, Microsoft, Twitter, Google and Meta are all reducing their capacity. And I wondered if you've got any insights as to what's behind that and then how the overall labour market is looking over there. Yeah, employment is a real mystery at the moment. So we've seen jobs being added in December, but at the lowest rate for a little while. They're less than October and November, 223,000. Uh, and we've seen some fall off in professional business services employment. But overall, in the year, it's it's still up by about 2.8%. So we are seeing unemployment still fall. And it's back down to those 50-year lows. So we are definitely seeing increasing layoffs in tech, as you, as you alluded to, real estate, financial services. And now we're seeing it in a bit manufacturing. And there were a lot of lot of layoffs that going on in in January. You know, tech particularly like SAP, IBM, uh, Google let uh, twelve announced twelve thousand redundancies. Microsoft announced ten thousand. Amazon eighteen thousand. That's a lot. But we've also seen companies like Salesforce eight thousand. Honestly, they're coming thick and fast now. But in the in the financial services sector, we've seen Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, Capital One, and then in the industrial sector manufacturing 3m and dow and this is just repeat 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 so intuitively you'd expect with all those layoffs uh, unemployment to really start ramping up but that's not been the case so far now there is a little bit of a lag between when layoffs are announced and when they actually happen so it could be we're seeing a little bit of a, a delay but the fact is that if you look at weekly jobless claims initial claims, which are a good indicator of where unemployment is going, they've been declining. Uh, the last ones we have is for the week of January the 21st, and it was 186,000 uh, weekly jobless initial claims, which is the lowest since last April. So what's what's buttressing the, the employment situation? Well, it's still all those open jobs. We've still got around one and three quarter job openings for every unemployed person. So I think what's happening here is that we, we see, although we're seeing a lot of layoffs, I think we're going to see some absorption uh, in the in the job market by all those vacancies. Now, what I found really interesting was a report in the Wall Street Journal that I saw uh, recently, which said that small businesses are responsible for all the net job growth since the pandemic started. 
So I think we can expect to see a lot of these people going to small businesses. I can expect that there'll be a lot of new business and entrepreneurial activity as a result of these layoffs. So, you know, there's, there's, although, you know, the, the employment, the unemployment, uh, the, the layoffs uh, keep going along, there seems to be this absorption pattern going on. But it's not all bad news. I mean, Boeing's announced that they're going to be hiring 10,000 new people. And there are some other uh, that have reported increases in hiring over the last few days as well. So, you know, it, it, unemployment is still low and the labor market is the thing that's been buttressing the economy from a you know, recessional headwinds for some time. And for the moment, at least, it looks like that's going to continue. Wow. Well, I mean, you know, so long as the economy is still uh, is still able to grow, I just I'm curious really to 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 sort of get some insight as to why suddenly all these all these tech companies are deciding to lay off in their thousands, but perhaps that's something for for another time and another podcast. But of course, the news has been full of China and their surge in COVID cases ever since they scrapped their insane COVID policies, I suppose you could call them. And I wondered whether or not supply chains are now being impacted by the fact that there are so many people in China that um, seems to have contracted COVID after the zero COVID policy was abandoned. Yeah, the, the zero COVID policy was uh, draconian, let's put it like that. And, you know, China just suddenly, you know, ripped the Band-Aid off and let everyone go back to their normal lives. Now, you know, we're still, you know, around the Lula New Year when there was a lot of travel in China. So, you know, we haven't seen really the full impact of that. But, you know, there's, I think there's a general sentiment that China is not going to go through a, a, a COVID spike that is going to affect global supply chains to that that extent as we know you know the current strains of covid are fairly mild and the the more relaxed attitude by the chinese government may well mitigate any what we would otherwise regard as significant supply chain issues which we saw during the time when the zero lockdown policy was in place i mean all you need is a, a couple of people with covid and whole factories would be just shut down so I, I think there's a little bit of optimism around that china will not cause uh, supply chain disruptions in the way it has been doing and indeed i saw a survey from the World Economic Forum Chief Economist Outlook who said only 23% of chief economists expect supply chain disruption to have a significant impact on businesses in, in 2023. So, you know, there's, there's some optimism there and, uh, you know, we, we, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. But uh, it's, it's, it's good that it's optimism rather than pessimism. Fantastic. So talking of COVID then, there's been a lot of chatter about commercial real estate and now that remote and hybrid working looks set to be the new normal, how is that affecting businesses that are holding large amounts of office space? Yeah, this, this again is one of those things that you, you know, you treat as a bit of a head scratcher, really. So I've done some research on this and 
the picture it's kind of intuitive you you think was happening is you know all all these people are out remote working and so that would cause a lot of office space to be empty still and you know that would that would cause also all sorts of problems in the commercial real estate market well first thing you have to remember about commercial real estate is it is it, that 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 market it has a lot of different types of uh, commercial real estate in it and it's not it's not just off its space it, you know factories warehouses and all sorts of other types of commercial real estate but zeroing in on the office space at the moment th there seems to be a, a, a you know two different trends going on here so you've got the you know high-end office space that is very desirable for businesses to occupy it's in you know it's in the right places particularly in the sunbelt market you know where business is booming you know there's a demand for office space in the northeast life sciences where which was really never a great industry for remote working anyway you know there's demand for office space so you know if you've got high quality premium office space you're probably going to see better occupancy rates than you're seeing from the older buildings the ones that aren't uh, environmentally uh, friendly so to speak and there is actually a generally a, a, about a 12 percent structural vacancy rate anyway with those types of office space because they're, they're just undesirable they're you know just not high quality they're in the wrong places uh, in the wrong industries and so that increase that that market is likely to see an increase in vacancies over time now so we've 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 got that sort of bifurcation going on between the good office properties and the older ones that aren't as in, as habitable then we've got the interest rates uh, economic uncertainty we've got cost containment going on which are obviously headwinds against commercial real estate and you know I th as we're seeing there's a real push right now to get people back in offices and you know the outlook I, I don't know that that outlook is is going to come to fruition I, I still think that there's going to be a lot of open vacant office space going forward now the argument says, well, if you've got vacant office space in buildings and it's not going to be occupied, well, why don't you turn it into residential space? Because there is an absolute shortage of residential uh, space at the moment in, in a lot of markets, and that's pushed rental prices way up. And, and the problem is it's not so easy to take an existing commercial real estate property and turn it into residential property. I mean, there's a, there's obviously you know unless you can repurpose office space to uh, apartments that's that's tough to do you've also got the issue of zoning because a lot of local governments won't allow you to just simply turn commercial real estate into residential real estate because of their their their, their plans and their requirements so in all it's it's a pretty sort of complicated picture right now but one thing is certain is it's not just all downside for the office market it, it there's there's some upside and we'll have to see what happens with the return to work during the course of 2023 to see whether you know even some of that pri whether that primary high quality space becomes subject to the contagion that's affecting the lower quality space
Yeah, it's very interesting and it will be something worth keeping an eye on for the future. So look, as we know, the US has three stock markets, the Dow, the NASDAQ and the S&P 500. What's their performance been like so far this quarter? Well, in in a nutshell, it's actually been pretty good. Uh, January was a, a good month, particularly for the Nasdaq stock market. But you know, we're, I mean, it, in in a nutshell, <laughs> there's some recovery going on now. Whether that continues into February and March, uh, with all these you know headwinds of layoffs going on and companies reporting results, I don't know. But at least for the beginning of the year, after last year's uh, declines, it's it's a good start. Fantastic. Well, look, let's now turn to our profession. I heard on the grapevine that the US Internal Tax Service has just secured $80 billion in new funding. Why do they need it and what will they spend it on? Yeah, this is this is a big amount of money, but it really the US Tax Service, which is called the Internal Revenue Service, has been underfunded for, for many, many years. So this funding is is going towards a few things. Firstly, to help the agency reduce the backlog of tax returns. And there were pictures on the news of IRS canteens full of boxes of tax returns that had not been processed. And as of last October, the report I saw was that there were 9.6 million, that's a big number, 9.6 million tax returns that had not been processed from years prior to 2021. Wow. So uh, first thing is, you know, they, they need people desperately to be able to process this backlog. And the, the reports are that they are making a dent into that, but that's still a long way to go. The other thing is they need people to go hunt down unpaid tax. There are estimated to be around $600 billion worth of unpaid tax bills out there. And because there is a shortage of people to do audits, as they're referred to, of tax bills and of people who have complex tax affairs and because the US system is you know self-reporting then a lot of people have uh, taken advantage of of that to perhaps uh, under declare the amount of tax they owe so you know they obviously there's there's a lot of recruitment of personnel going on the technology enhancements that are being made because the IRS systems are desperately old and coping with continual tax changes that come along is is a real challenge for them. The other thing is to improve customer service. In 2022, during the filing season, the IRS is reported to have received 73 million calls from taxpayers seeking guidance. And the number that actually got answered, 10%. So if you want to get through to the IRS to ask them a question, you're going to spend an awful lot of time on the phone. Yeah, and on hold. Well, of course, it is actually tax return season. So I wondered, just to finish up, if you could briefly talk us through the need-to-know facts regarding the US tax system, David. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm talking about personal tax here. Uh, and this is also from personal experience. So we, we have a requirement for most people to actually, if they are eligible to file a tax return, to file two. They have to file one for the federal government and one for their state. And so, you know, it's not just a question of knocking out one return and you're done. Uh, in all states except for seven, you are required to do a state return 
for state and local taxes. The other thing is that the whether you have to file return is dependent upon three things your your income your filing status and your age filing status i mean like whether you're married or single and so on but age is a kind of an interesting one because if you're a minor and you have income that is above the thresholds you, you are still required to report a, a, a you know report to the irs and provide a, a tax return the other thing that's I believe unique to the US tax system is that all US citizens and resident aliens, regardless of where they reside in the world, are required to file a tax return with the US authorities as they are subject to income tax on their worldwide income. And that causes all sorts of problems for Americans overseas who maybe have been bought, were born here but have really no other connection, they're still required to file a tax return with the authorities. And indeed, the, the enforcement of, of the IRS over um, income from overseas is, is pretty rigorous. And you actually do have to declare uh, foreign assets and foreign income, not only to the IRS, which is part of the Treasury Department in the US system of government, we also <laughs> have to declare very similar information to the Treasury Department. So you're kind of duplicating the effort. But the penalties for not declaring foreign assets and foreign income are, are, are pretty severe. And so that's something that the tax authorities are, are very hot on here. As I said earlier, taxes are self-assessed. You fill out your tax return uh, you are provided forms certain forms from you know uh, banks and for any investments you have and certain expenditures you have and those come in but those same forms are also sent to the irs so this there's this matching that goes on so when you submit your tax return they match the information they actually received directly to see whether there's any inconsistencies and I've I actually fallen foul of this once when I forgot to report a number on my tax return. It was just an innocent error. But the next thing I knew, I I, I received a letter um, with a, a tax demand for penalties and interest. Now I I corrected it and that all went away. But you you have to be very very careful because the IRS because of the automation involved in matching uh, can spot discrepancies very very easily. The, the U.S. tax system, in my experience, is, is pretty darn complicated. I mean, there are forms and forms and forms, and you have to do these very esoteric calculations on those forms, and there's a good chance if you do them manually, you'll, you'll, you'll make a mistake. Uh, most tax returns are actually filed electronically, whether they're done by individuals or done by preparers like CPAs. And about the last in 2021, which was the last filing season, there were 151 individual, sorry, 151 million individual tax returns that were filed electronically, and that was 90% of all individual tax returns, and 55% of those electronic filings were done by practitioners. So that still leaves, you know, a, a, a lot of paper returns that are, are submitted. But the other thing is that electronically means that you have to go out and uh, for a lot of people, buy tax software that will hold, help you walk through the entire process. And even with tax software, it takes the uh, it takes Americans an average of 13 hours 
to prepare their tax returns. And speaking from experience, that's an average. And I always end up spending a lot more time uh, doing that tax return. So this is something that I have to look forward to over the next few weeks. And I've got to, like everyone else, meet the tax filing deadline, which is April the 15th, although it's delayed a couple of days this year because of a couple of holidays. You know, as, as the saying goes, there's two certainties, death and taxes. And taxes are certainly something that can occupy the mind and time uh, every single year. Thank you so much, David, for sharing your insights on the US markets and beyond. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for from our man in Washington today. Thank you for tuning in and keep an eye out for our next podcast, which will be coming soon. Until then, it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from him. Goodbye. Goodbye.